When elected in 2002, Dave Reed became the youngest member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. Today, he is the House Republican Majority Leader with the largest Republican majority since 1958. I recently sat down with uh, Representative Reed at a craft brewery in his district. Since recording our podcast, uh, Dave Reed has decided he is going to run for Congress. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of the Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs, and I'm in Indiana, Pennsylvania at the Noblestein uh, Brewery, and I'm joined by uh, House Majority Leader uh, Dave Reed. Uh, great spot you've picked here, Dave. Matt, we could not be happier to have you here in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Noblestein's just been open for a couple years. You know, a couple guys uh, from the community brewing beer in their garage, you know, started this uh, from scratch. And it's just amazing how far it's come. You know, they're into the Pittsburgh market now. And just a really exciting example of starting a business from the ground up. Well, I, I don't know if you saw this, but the Brewers Association said that Pennsylvania is the nation's leader uh, in the production of craft brewing, even even beats California, yeah. It just came out. It's amazing because, you know, we'd been kind of moving up the totem pole there, and to be number one in the country yeah. is pretty amazing. And because those are all small businesses yeah, exactly. starting in people's homes, their garages, and people taking a risk. Well, and that's, I mean, that's what's really neat is you've got these small businesses that are starting up. Uh, I, I remember a small business. Uh, when I lived in San Diego, there was this little hole-in-the-wall home brewing place called Ballast Point. Well, Ballast Point recently sold for a billion dollars. So, you know, this is like uh, the American dream that you start this business uh, in your home and uh, it can explode. And I I think Noble Stein is uh, beginning to expand into Pittsburgh and and other areas. Yeah, it it truly, you know, kind of amplifies the land of opportunity. And, you know, to see that land of opportunity play out with a little bit of beer along the way is kind of exciting and a little bit refreshing, too. Well, that's the fun part of having a show called Brews and Views. We get to do it over beer. So uh, enjoying uh, one right now. But uh, Dave, I want to talk about, uh, you know, uh, how you got involved in politics, uh, but really your background. Uh, where you grew up uh, and the influences, and uh, then we'll talk about where you're headed. Of course, uh, lots of speculation and things like that going on. But uh, uh, is is Indiana home for you? Is this was this where you grew up? Uh, my wife and I live about a mile from here, uh, right in around Indiana, with our three children. Joshua's uh, nine years old. Uh, Gracie is just about to turn eight, and our youngest Ellie is six years old. So we live in Indiana now. I grew up about five miles down the road, you know, big, large distance down the road in a town called Homer City. Uh, I was actually born a little further down the road, about 15 miles down the road in a town called Blairsville. Uh, my parents, when I was born, I lived for a, a year or so in a trailer park in Blairsville, and then my parents bought their first land, about two acres just outside of Homer City, uh, moved our trailer there for about six or seven years till they saved enough money and built uh, their first house. And, you know, grew up in Homer City, went to Homer Center High School, graduated from Homer Center High School in 1996, 
then went on uh, to IUP, so didn't go very yeah, far real, down the road. Real, uh, <laughs> yeah, real far down the road, but got a degree in mathematics and economics. Okay. And then I actually did take a little trip across the state, spent about a year and a half at the University of Pennsylvania uh, getting my master's okay. degree. And uh, you have brothers and sisters? Uh, I've got and, one sister. Okay. She's about three years younger than I am, uh, Jessica. Uh, she lives here in the community. Her husband is a teacher in the Butler School District, so he travels about an hour each way okay. each day. And my sister actually works at the Homer City Power Plant. Uh, she does some of their outages and you know does some HR and that type of so stuff. So you know at the power who to, you know who to call when the power goes out. Uh, well, you yeah, know where yeah. the power is coming from, <laughs> and you, all you had to do. I grew up probably half a mile from the Homer City Power Plant, so okay. you know seeing the smokestacks running, you knew you know that was helping employ folks uh-huh. in the community because this area has got a long history of energy, particularly the coal industry, and now with the natural gas industry, you know really you know have helped uh, power the eastern seaboard. And uh, what did your parents do? Were, uh, did both of them work? Uh, my dad was a TV repairman when I was born at a small appliance store down in Blairsville. I worked there for about 16 years, and then in the mid-'80s, when the recessionary periods hit, uh, the appliance store started go- going downhill and went out of business, so he was unemployed. Uh, so he was unemployed for a little while, and my mother went back to work. She had been an administrative person at a local company, but then you know took some time off when my sister and I were born. But went, to, went back to work at a local grocery store, uh, worked in the seafood department for a couple years, worked our way up, was manager of the department, then started to get into some of the accounting side of the equation. Ended up actually working for a local bank, S&T Bank, and retiring from there just a couple years ago. Are they still uh, living in the area? Oh, yeah, they still okay. live in the area. Okay. And my dad went on, worked in manufacturing uh, for a number of years, you know, did everything from maintenance to you know, machining uh, to wiring control boxes until unfortunately the, the company he worked for, a local company called FMC, you know, closed its doors after generations of being here. Uh, they outsour- outsourced a lot of those jobs to China and moved some of them across the country to Oregon and then down to Mississippi and Tupelo. So he's been unemployed a couple times during my lifetime. Uh, but the great part for me is, you know, we struggled a little bit. But every time, you know, my parents got knocked down, they got back up again hmm. and, and really kind of set an example for my sister and I that, you know, the American dream doesn't always come easy. You got to you got to pursue it. You got to go after it. You got to take advantage of those opportunities. But ended up being the reason I went into politics. And, so, and, and seeing that happen in your family, I mean, was that a, a dramatic impact or I mean, how did your parents uh, deal with that and talking to the kids like, look, uh, dad just lost his job? You know, it, it's a tough conversa- conversation to have with children, but my parents always, you know, look, they were very uh, loving and caring and very supportive no matter how difficult times may have been. And they always set that example. I, I remember one uh, moment uh, when I was, I think I was in junior high school, probably the second time my dad had lost his job and we're sitting around the dinner table and I had, you know, you know, I had friends. I, I was more than old enough to be aware of this situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Um, I had, you know, seen every morning, you know, we would have the free and reduced lunch program at the school district. And I came home and I I had gotten one of the forms and I said to my dad, I think, you know, we probably qualify for free and reduced lunches right now. You know, do you want to fill out the form? I just, I still, to this day, carry with me every day. My dad saying, as long as I have a dollar and a quarter in my pocket, we're going to pay for your lunches. Mm. And, you know, Mm. just the mentality that that set for me. Even though we were struggling, you know, their view, somebody else was struggling more. Mm -hmm. And it also makes me remember how much uh, school lunch was back then when I'm paying for my own kids' uh, lunch today. But, you know, they just set a 
an amazing example for my hmm. sister and I. Hmm. And you know, they worked hard. They bought, they built the first house and scrimped and saved for my sister and I to go to college. I'm the first in my family to go to okay. college, and then my sister uh, followed me, and then had the opportunity to go out to Penn. And you know, politics was never something I had dreamed yeah, of. Yeah. Well, were your parents uh, politically involved? Or no. Did you talk no. politics at no, the dinner no, table? No. Nothing. We, okay. They were not political okay. uh, at all, uh, other than voting. Uh, but, you know, mostly around the dinner table, we tried to balance schedules and, you know, when you're worried about, you know, job opportunities and that type of stuff. And, you know, we're just a traditional American family in that manner. But, no, they were not political. Um, I really didn't get a bug to look for a public office until probably graduate school. Okay. Because my undergraduate degree was in math and economics, and I was headed for, you know, the business community. Or actually, originally, I was a math education major for a semester. Okay. So thought about teaching. Was thought about that, yeah, teaching right. and found out that, you know, I liked mathematics. I'm a numbers person, but I wasn't sure, you know, teaching was the right avenue for mm-hmm. me. Although to this day, uh, my mother would be thrilled if I went over to see her and said, look, I'm going to be a math, high school math teacher because <laughs> uh, she's not a fan of politics. Uh, she just and look, I think it's that that motherly uh, type of environment where she just, you know, nobody likes to see, you know, their loved one out there, mm-hmm. you know, getting beat mm-hmm. over the head uh, from time to time. Yeah. So so at what point did you start to pay attention to politics? What, what, I mean, did you do that uh, as a kid or was it only after you went to college or after college? Mostly in college. Okay. You know, as I got in my later years at IUP, I had an opportunity to do an internship with the Ridge administration. I was an intern for a semester in Governor Rich's policy office in, in, the department, in Harrisburg, in, Harrisburg okay. in the Department of Community and Economic Development. And I got to see, you know, the political world operating. And I had basically been an athlete in high school and college. Not a great athlete. Not I would say <laughs> I'm not even sure I was a good athlete, but I was an athlete. You were I was on teams. there. I worked I worked very, very hard <laughs> at it. And you know, I looked at, I resemble that comment. Yeah, I looked at the two things in life that really kind of took hold for me. I loved the competitiveness of athletics, even if I wasn't very good at it. Mm -hmm. And I love the thought process in politics and government. And I, I, I know they're separated in today's world, but I really look at them together because I view politics as a means of having the responsibility in government to try to make positive Mm -hmm. change. And I looked at it as an opportunity of all the people that helped my family, you know, all the teachers, all the community members and government picking us up when we were down and propelling us forward, not allowing us to rest as a safety net uh, that you live on for the rest of your life. Well, you know, I want to I want to come back to something you just said, because I think it's it's something that's um, somewhat unique, uh, <laughs> sadly, uh, and that is that that politics is a way to advance policy, I think, is what you were saying. Um, that a lot of folks, they just are attracted to the politics side of things. Uh, I mean, I can remember talking, I mean, even years ago, that uh, asking someone from the other side of the aisle, uh, that, like, how many people are serious about policy? That, that that's really what drives them and why they got into this. Uh, and sadly, it was a really low number, uh, that the number of people that are really concerned. I think that that has improved dramatically over the last decade, I mean, I've been in this for, you know, over 15 years now, and I've seen a, a dramatic increase, I think, in terms of the people that are coming to Harrisburg and wanting to make a positive difference that, 
some of those entrapments or the things that were uh, attractive to people mm-hmm. uh, have kind of gone away. Uh, what, what's your, I mean, you've been there since uh, 2003, I guess, you is uh, when you were first uh, sworn in. Um, and you've uh, essentially seen a lot of that change that I have. Is Do you share that uh, that observation that I just made? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of positive change during my tenure. I came in as a 24-year-old kid who was taking a train twice a week from Johnstown to Philadelphia so I could finish my graduate Ooh. degree and, you know, take an attempt at running for public office. And at the same time, I was, you know, the downtown director for a small borough, uh, Blairsville Borough, uh, where I began my life, you know, just part-time to be able to pay the bills and, you know, buy dog food for my dog. I decided at that time I needed a companion to live in my one-bedroom apartment. Um, But I think over time, you, you see more folks focused on policy. You see more of a realization that politics is not what you see, you know, back in the day on West Wing, I guess today on Scandal or Designated Survivor or on a presidential campaign. I think people think it's a lot more glamorous than it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reality is, you know, too many folks in today's world think uh, politics is about working hard so that one night in November you get to celebrate with your family and your friends and, you know, pop the cork on the champagne and all is well (laughs) and great. And in reality, if that's the reason you're doing it, you're probably in the wrong business. Um, Truly, I view politics as, you know, wanting to get that opportunity, as Michael Jordan would say, to have your hand on the ball when the game's on the line, when big decisions are being made, and they're not every day, but when big decisions are being made, to be at the center of it, to actually make changes uh, for uh, for communities, for citizens, for the future. And I think there are more folks like that in Harrisburg, at least. And, you know, for me, I, I enjoy much more than the political side uh, sitting there going over spreadsheets of numbers <laughs> hour yeah. after hour. Which after doors my wife you got to go knock on? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, we kind of sped ahead there because we uh, I, I want to talk about what then compelled you to decide to run uh, in 2002 as a 24 year old, which uh, had, you know, if you win, you would be the youngest uh, member of uh, the 203-member House of Representatives and run against a, uh, I guess, maybe a liberal lioness, uh, Sarah, Sarah Steelman, uh, who was a longtime incumbent. I don't know how many, how many terms uh, she had been in office, but uh, this was not, uh, you know, I guess you needed some young guy who thought he could, could win something like that to take someone like that on. Well, I, I think more than anything, I went off to graduate school and, you know, still had not really dawned upon me running for office. And when I went to Penn, you know, just met a lot of fascinating folks who had been in the political world, many of them professionally, then gone, had gone back for their master's degrees. And I just remember sitting there one day and having a conversation with a bunch of friends over lunch. They're like, you should run for office. And I'm like, no, that's crazy. <laughs> They're like, no, you should run. You should go back to your community. Like you look, and because they got tired of me talking about Indiana County and IUP and Homer City and just the community that I love. They're like, you, you should run for office. Mm-hmm. You should give it a shot. You're young. And, you know, there's not much risk when you're young. I didn't have a did mortgage. You know who, did you know who the state representative was? Oh, yeah, was I, I, knew, okay. I knew who the state representative was. And, look, we had not had a whole lot of re- interaction. And mm-hmm. truthfully, you know, even though her and I did not agree on policy, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like I was confrontational or running because I dislike Sarah Stillman. It was more or less, I looked around. I was now five years out of Homer Center High School. And so many people I graduated with had to move away for economic mm-hmm. opportunity. And I said, look, I, I've been given a great gift. 
you know, my family struggled, but, you know, we came through it. Folks helped us. I want to be part of helping other folks, you know, get those same opportunities. So I gave it a shot. I, well, I just, and I know you uh, you uh, hooked up with uh, my good friend and his wife, uh, Jeff and Rebecca Coleman, and absolutely. that they were part of that endeavor, right? Jeff had just ran in a neighboring county uh-huh. and won as a young uh, 20-something-year-old. I think he was and the youngest at the time. He was the youngest yeah. at the time, and then I uh, had the privilege of following him in that category. Okay. And then his wife started helping out with my campaign. And, you know, basically, you know, spent about two years knocking on 11,000 doors, uh, just working my tail off. Uh, learning along the way. And well, and and that idea of knocking on doors, that was kind of the old school way, mm-hmm. right? And that politics had kind of really gotten away from that. And I think that uh, Jeff and you really brought that back into how you win races. And now it's pretty much, if you're not knocking on doors, you're not winning. No, it's back to the norm. Yeah. It's amazing because almost nobody was knocking on doors in Harrisburg at the time. Certainly nobody at any higher offices yeah. like state senate or congressional races, and I mean, truthfully, at that time, too, the town hall meetings that mm. public officials are doing today were just not occurring. Yeah. I mean, the, the, that was the old school politics, too. Mm. And I remember for me, after I did uh, take office, you know, one of the areas that I was most, um, I guess, trying to think of the right term, but I, I, w- I was most afraid of in politics was that on the spot type of questions you get at the town hall meetings. So, you know, I just made the decision, I'm just going to keep doing town hall meetings till I get comfortable in that sort of setting. Mm-hmm. So for about uh, 14 years now, I've been doing eight to 10 town hall meetings a year in the district, uh, break the region down, all different types of specialty ones. We do ones with local elected officials. We do human service and nonprofit town hall meetings, uh, different communities, different topics. And I found, I think that may be what I enjoy the most. Mm-hmm. That interaction, that discussion, that is just a free-flowing dialogue that you don't get via email sure, or text sure. message yeah. or even phone call. And it, it's that return to that type of old-school politics isn't a bad thing, yeah. that communication. Yeah. So so you, you ended up beating a uh, long-term Democratic incumbent. Uh, and this was a pretty Democratic area for a long time. I know that... Uh, Jeff Coleman's uh, victory uh, uh, previous was a Democrat in longtime incumbent. Uh, how, why are you a Republican? What what made you decide? You know what? I'm a Republican. Those are the you know principles, the policies that that I believe in, uh, and that you would say I'm going to run you know as a challenge against what has traditionally been a Democratic uh, House seat. Well, you know, the district at the time was about 38% Republican, uh, probably about, you know, 48% Democrat, about 10% independent with the university with IEP uh-huh. right here. And it had been held uh, by the Democratic Party, I think, uh, Representative Stillman for about 12 years. And the state senator here had been there for about 30 years. Yeah. And I think Jeff's seat was probably even longer than that in that regard. But, you know, I had actually switched parties a couple times as a young person. I registered in 96 as a Republican. Um, without a real thought process on the political party structure, but it was a presidential primary and President Clinton was unopposed in a Democratic primary. And at the time, you know, there were a number of Republican candidates. Now, by the time it got to the Republican primary, it didn't matter, but it was over, but it ended up being Bob Dole. Uh, But I remember being fascinated with uh, Steve Forbes at the time. So I registered as a Republican in college. That was for him. Yeah, a lot of people (laughs) in college, you know, you switch over to the Democratic party and I did that. for no other reason than almost everybody else was. Uh-huh. And then when I looked at running for office, you know, I come from a community here in Indiana 
that there's not a huge difference between Republican and Democrat, particularly when you get outside of the university community. You right, know, it, within right. a university, there's right. a difference. But the rest, but of, like on on guns, everybody no, I mean, was the rest pro of the community, yeah. pro life, yeah. pro gun. You know, people just want to work. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot, a long history of. You know, a Catholic immigration okay. into the community, particularly with the coal industry and the steel industry. You know, just salt of the earth folks who just want to work hard, you know, coach their kids' little league team, pay their taxes, and go on with their life. And, you know, was looking at it from a Democratic perspective, and I met with some of the local Democratic Party officials, and they're like, uh, we're not interested. Yeah. We're not interested in a young person. <laughs> we're not interested in that thought process. You know, you should probably just go switch to Republican. And I mm. thought to myself, well, I'm probably a Republican. Okay. I, I think I am a yeah. Republican. Uh, and I'm really running, particularly at the time, I just wanted to help my community. I mm-hmm. wanted to help rebuild a, what had started to fall apart with the downward trend in the coal industry and wanted to be part of the future. So ended up you know, meeting with the Republican Party, meeting with a lot of folks, and running as a Republican, winning. And you know, Do you I remember guess, what your margin was? Uh, did you, uh, 57 I mean, 43. Really? So, so yeah. that your your first time. What was it that uh, people embraced? Did they like the youthfulness? Did they? I, what, what was? I it? honestly think it was the yeah. youthfulness. And okay. I remember people ahead of time. You know, the old, you know, old guard saying, you know, people are never going to elect a young person yeah. to public office. And as I knocked on those eleven thousand doors, I only one person told me they thought I was too young. Huh. And I remember hearing thousands of times, "Oh my goodness, it's so great hmm. to see a young person interested." In politics, mm-hmm. interested in government, interested in our community, and you know it seems like it's such a long time ago. Uh, but I guess I'm still a, a young person. I'm still under the age of forty. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, I know you're pushing forty, so uh, <laughs> you, you won't be able to say that for too much longer. Uh, but so, Dave, you you end up going in in 2003 uh, and start to rise in the ranks, and in part, uh, a lot of that was you got very involved with helping to elect more Republicans and dramatically grow uh, the Republican majority, even going from a minority to a majority. Uh, And certainly out west here uh, has been a significant growth area for Republicans. And really not, I mean, turning from Democrat seats to really strong conservative seats. I mean, fiscal conservatives, people that are voting for the things that are really in the Republican platform with ease now. I, you look at the western half of the state when, when I started in this business, and really Jeff Coleman started it, one of the few Republican western seats at the time, and then I won two years later. I mean, you look at it then and you look at it today, mm-hmm. uh, the population hasn't necessarily changed, but their politics have. Yeah. They've realized that the National Democratic Party has gone further and further to the left, particularly on financial and economic issues. And actually social uh, yeah, issues, yeah. too. Everything. Everything. <laughs> and, you know, this area last election went overwhelming for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Overwhelming. Yeah. It truly is that Rust Belt area where, you know, folks aren't as interested in, you know, the far left social policies. But what they are interested in uh, is keeping their families close to them. You know, making sure that their kids maybe could stay in their community when they raise their grandkids. And, you know, it's that component of keeping families together that I think led a a large portion of this part of the state to move to the Republican Party Mm -hmm. and then elect Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. Are people still registered as Democrats out here or are they switching? What's happening? It's slowly shifting over time. uh, But I think if you look at the voting trends, they are much more overwhelming than the registration. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I think performance, you, you can see that in, Absolutely. Uh, in, the, in the numbers. So uh, you kind of uh, put in your time, uh, right, and uh, start to rise in the ranks and uh, get elected into some leadership uh, posts. Uh, I think one in particular was the policy committee mm-hmm. and start to drive some of the policy things that you're passionate about. Uh, what, what are some of those issues that, that really get you up uh, and want to be a policy maker? What, what are those policy issues that uh, you're most excited about? Well, you're right. I, I kind of got involved in the electoral process for some other campaigns uh, by default. Uh, when you're in the minority party in Harrisburg, at least under the last uh, Democratic majority rule, you know, there wasn't much bipartisanship. It was mostly you guys are on the sidelines. We're going to do whatever we want. Uh-huh. You know, sometimes successful, sometimes not. Right. You know, so you're, you're left with a little bit of time on your hands. And I'm like, well, I can't just sit here. It's not in my nature. I've got to do something. So I started getting in law involved in the campaign arm for the caucus to try to win back the majority so that we could put forth good policy. Remind, do you remember what the minority, what, where you guys were at number-wise? We were we were at 97 okay. uh, members, and uh, they were... And you need 102 to you have... You need 102 <laughs> to have uh, the majority. Uh-huh. Uh, so we weren't far off, okay. but then in the 2010 elections, I, I headed uh, the campaign apparatus for the House Republicans. Mm-hmm. We ended up winning back the majority. I got elected policy chair, and we took on a wide variety of issues. Uh, welfare reform was one of the top issues we looked at out of the gate with the Corbett administration. Uh, we looked at tax policy. We looked at we looked at infrastructure. Uh, one of the areas I was most passionate about was a evaluation of our anti-poverty efforts mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and it ended up being a fascinating journey. You know, once people got past the fact that hey, I'm a Republican and I care about people in poverty. Yeah. You know, initially yeah. a lot of Republicans were like, well, you can't be Republican right. and care about people right. in poverty, right. and Democrats were like, uh, you can't be serious about that. Yeah. But we traveled the state. We talked to hundreds of people and organizations, and it turned it out. Everybody was frustrated by the same things. Yeah. It didn't matter whether you were liberal or conservative. Everybody was saying, look, this system's not working. Yeah. We're spending almost a trillion dollars a year, and we still have 46 million Americans living in poverty. That's not right. You know, it, we'd be better off just cutting everybody a check right. at that point. <laughs> you know, so, so from that vantage point, you know, it's kind of similar to... You know, some of the efforts that Paul Ryan overtook, you know, mm-hmm. when he was a rank and file congressman and then chair of Ways and Means, where he really looked at, you know, the, the roots behind governmental spending. You know, are we actually spending money in the most effective yeah. manner possible to get results, to help people get out of poverty, to be self-sustaining? And actually live that American dream of opportunity before them. So well, and, and I think that uh, do you think that that is uh, the measurement of success that this current administration has? Is that look, we want fewer people uh, taking public subsidies that are using you know food stamps and using public, or it seems that they tout that we have you know we've got more people. Which seems, which I would argue, is the exact wrong measurement of success. And that always frustrated me under the Rendell administration, too, because they were always touting, we got X amount of people signed up for adult basic, X amount of people signed up for the CHIP program or food stamps or anything else. And look, don't get me wrong. That's not a measure of success. I think those programs are there for a reason. But they're there for a safety net. Our measure of success should not be, you know, and I'll just use the example of a food bank. You know, if we're measuring success by how many people we're handing out a bag of food for, we're measuring the wrong category. What we should be measuring is, okay, let's take care of that immediate need. But how many people who needed food today, six months from now, don't need it because they're self-sufficient? It's it's what we kind of deem transformational 
uh, anti-poverty efforts yeah. where you're actually transforming a life. And I think, unfortunately, in government you know, over the last couple decades, really, um, the Great Society turned into a great society where government provides everything. And we, we, we pushed the faith-based yeah. community to the side. And I think in order to truly get that, that cumulative effort of helping people live that dream, you've got to engage communities. You've got to engage educational programs. You've got to engage governmental leaders. You've got to engage the faith-based uh, sector as well. And more than anything else, you have to actually look at outcomes. You know, you have to measure them and you have to be willing to say, hey, that program didn't work. We didn't get the results we wanted. Let's try something different. And I know that's a novel concept in government. <laughs> you know, things live on for generations right, right. before somebody asks the question. But you look at a lot of the nonprofits, they're doing an amazing job of looking at data every week and adapting their programs to that data. Why can't government yeah. do that? We should be doing that. Well, and, and I think in order for us, uh, look, uh, the, the, the costs of human services have now exceeded those of education, which it used to be education used to be our biggest expenditure. So human services are growing at a rate. They're simply unaffordable, unsustainable. So we need to do it for both the, the human costs as well as the financial costs. We've got to start figuring out how we turn it into a safety net. I think everybody agrees we need to have a safety net, but not a hammock. Right. No. We, don't, we don't want something that people become generationally, uh, you know, uh, addicted or or trapped uh, in the poverty that just, uh, well, that people can't live that American dream. And I think one of the things we found when we did that exploration was not just the barriers to the American dream that government sets up sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, that's always talked about in presidential elections. You know, is the American dream out of reach? The sad part is in some communities there are fit kids who don't know that there's an American dream to begin with. And think about that. In America, in the year 2018, there are kids that don't know what life could become. Mm -hmm. That's a sad state of affairs. Mm -hmm. And you know what? That's on all of us for allowing that to happen, for allowing you know, that money to continue to be spent in the same manner that's not producing results, that's not lifting people up, whether it be educational policy, human service policy, uh, economic policy, public safety policy. Like, we cannot allow that to occur. It's not good, you know, from a human perspective, but as you said, it's not good from a budgetary yeah, perspective right. either. It's we can't afford it. No, Look, we so can't. We, we and have it, to, and yeah. it, it actually pushes uh, investment away from areas like like public safety, mm -hmm. like education, where, you know, maybe we want to do a little bit more infrastructure. Yeah. You know, it forces other decisions on infrastructure that would be a heck of a lot easier if we actually had more people churning through that system and getting to self-sustainability where we could shift those dollars over. Instead of taking more dollars away from our workers, shift those dollars over and make those investments and build that economy we all want. So how are we doing on that, Dave? How, are, are we... T tackling these tough problems? Are we passing legislation? Is Governor Wolf, does he share that vision for, you know, moving people from dependence to independence and uh, helping them to, you know, realize the American dream? You know, I think sometimes, you know, the governor engages in that process. And I think he is well-meaning a lot of the times, you know, in those discussions. I just think, unfortunately, it, oftentimes he falls back to the traditional playbook of, you know, government is the answer. Yeah. If we spend more money, we will solve the problem. Mm -hmm. well, when you're spending a trillion dollars, you haven't solved it by now. <laughs> Money's not going to get you there. Um, I think slowly but surely we're getting better. 
you know, you look at our pension reform proposal, the first ever defined contribution mm-hmm. pension program in the history of Pennsylvania. You know, you look at uh, wine in grocery stores in a private market for the first time in 80 years. You look at a new basic funding formula. You look at correctional reform instead of just this constant mentality of spending more and more money on prisons. You know, all of a sudden you're starting to see trends shift. Now, if we could take that same mentality, particularly with the Trump administration just giving the states more additional authority to require work mm-hmm. for welfare right, benefits right. for able-bodied citizens, yeah. you know, change Which that. is just amazing, really, that we don't That we even require, have to talk yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, I mean the and Clinton administration, will, yeah. <laughs> the Clinton administration <laughs> right. started that right. policy. Right, And the rigid that if administration. if you can work, you should pursue I mean, work. I mean, it's. It's a novel concept. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but. You know, looking at the human service area, I think that's our greatest opportunity for change, you know, through giving the states more flexibility, but also the states asking the tough questions, you know, entering into, and I think it's the state of Washington that did this first, of a results first initiative, where you actually measure uh, results. Mm -hmm. First, you determine what outcome you're seeking to effectuate, then you measure whether you're effectuating that outcome, and then you hold yourself accountable. If you're not, you say, okay, well, why am I funding the same program? Like, why am I still funding the same program mm-hmm. that's still getting me a graduation rate of 35%? You no, know, right, right. maybe I should try something different to actually get the results we're well, looking to get. Will this require Governor Wolf to seek uh, things from the federal government that maybe he's just not willing to? I mean, ha- how what? much can we do with Governor Wolf in there as our, as you know our governor? I think there's a lot we could do at the state level. Okay. Uh, we passed the vote, actually, George Dunbar and Steve Bloom. And Brian Culler had been working on this sort of initiative for the last couple of years. We passed it over to the Senate. We're hopeful that the Senate will send it to the governor's desk. And, you know, I can't imagine any governor would veto legislation. Now, granted, the governor likes to veto stuff. You know, veto Or not sign. Maybe he'll yeah. let it become maybe law. Maybe just let it become law. But yeah, I can't imagine he'd want to veto something that says we want to actually make sure dollars are used appropriately and helping people. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once you are able to engage in that process, okay, well, where do we need waivers from the federal government? Where can we tell our congressmen? Where can we tell our U.S. senators? Where can we contact the Trump administration and say, if you give us this flexibility, we can get better results? So it's let, an exciting opportunity. Yeah. Well, so let's uh, go b- back in time a little bit. So uh, 2014 comes around, and uh, you decide you want to run for House Majority Leader, which is really the person that drives a lot of the policy agenda for the caucus. Uh, how did you arrive at that point of like, all right, I'm going to be looking to not only be elected in my district, uh, be, but get elected by uh, the majority of uh, re- the Republican caucus? I, I think at least in part by default, uh, because <laughs> Sam Smith, who had been okay, speaker, decided right? he was going to retire. And, you know, uh, Mike Terzai, who had been majority leader, decided he was going to move up. And then it created that vacancy at majority leader. And I said, well, you know what? I've been working on policy. It's the natural um, step to try to enact some of that policy. And it gives you, you know, more ability to have your your hand on the ball when the game's on the line. Mm -hmm. Uh, So jumped into that opportunity, you know, ran a spirited race against Dan Saylor. And, you know, Stan and I have been working together ever since when he was educational chair and now as appropriations chairman, uh, ended up coming out on top of that race and you know I, I perhaps didn't know exactly the world I was getting myself <laughs> into uh, because then Pennsylvania went on to elect a Democratic governor and we elected more conservative majorities in the House and the Senate and it all kind of aligned uh, with a perfect storm of a massive budget deficit 
that had really been starting to pile up towards uh, the end of the Rendell administration when they used those federal stimulus dollars to plug operating budgets. And instead of making those tough Mm -hmm. decisions, Governor Rendell punted to Governor Corbett. And I think oftentimes he got a bad rap for some of the decisions he had to make. And all of a sudden, this perfect storm is coming together. And, you know, it's been a a three-year budgetary process that has been a difficult process, uh, to, to say the least. But I think there's actually some pretty exciting stuff that's happened during that time. You know, public pension reform being at the top of those accomplishments, mm-hmm. but also some additional opportunities in the school choice community with the expansion of the AITC program. Um, actually well, and, and, working- I, and I would say that uh, one of the accomplishments in a way, uh, right, is holding off what Governor Wolf wanted back in 2015, oh, which was $4.5 billion tax increase bigger than the other 49 states combined. And in fact, I was just reading about Connecticut that basically uh, pursued the agenda that Governor Wolf wanted of they've just like raised taxes every year and they're still dealing with the same problems. Uh, and that you just can look to Connecticut of like this is what uh, Governor Wolf's reality would have looked like in Pennsylvania. So in many ways, what you guys were able to stave off uh, was the prevention of disaster. I, I think absolutely. And if it weren't for the House Republican caucus, uh, and look, I think the Senate caucus, you know, did a yeoman's effort too. But I think really, if it weren't through the efforts of our caucus, uh, life would be a lot different right now in Pennsylvania. And look, we've gotten a lot of victories on policy along the way, you know, enacting changes to teacher seniority. So we actually have, you know, good teachers in the classroom that we're not laying off good teachers to say bad teachers because they have more well, seniority. And something similar to with pensions and liquor. Uh, the governor vetoed that before, but you guys stuck to it, and you've kind and we got of it. forced him to, to accept some of these changes, which is good. We got union intimidation yeah. legislation, right. pro-life legislation, you know, welfare reform. You know, we haven't been afraid to send stuff to the governor's desk, you know, to say, look, this is where the people of Pennsylvania are. If you're not there, then make the decision, veto the legislation. And look, he has from time yeah. to time. I mean, he vetoed work requirements for welfare last mm-hmm. fall, but you know, he'll answer to the voters on that uh, later on this year. Well, so as House Majority Leader, uh, what have been some of the biggest challenges that uh, ones that either you expected or didn't expect? Uh, you know, I think the biggest challenge is always going to be how do you bring people together in public policy? Because, and pension reform is a perfect example. If we all sat down, all of us would draw up a pension reform proposal that's different. That's just the nature of the beast. And trying to get people together to say, okay, here is where we can get 102 votes to get this done. Uh, I I will say the administrative side of the job is more challenging than I thought because (laughs) as House Majority Leader... Hurting cats comes to mind? Hurting (laughs) cats, but, you know, most of the operational function of the House comes through the leaders. So the legal team, the HR all that type of stuff that, you know, they don't tell you about when you run for House Majority <laughs> Leader, you know, how many times you're going to get sued just because of the title on the door, yeah. not Which because I'm of the name. Which I'm suing you, right? That's, yeah. yeah. Yes, that's, that's an excellent, <laughs> excellent point. I do believe you have some litigation yes, out there as yes. well. You know, gratefully so, actually. Uh, and, and let's talk about that just yeah, for a moment. Yeah. I think that's a unique situation where nobody had thought of in 300 years in Pennsylvania, a governor letting a, a bill become law, a budget become law without his signature. Mm-hmm. And if it didn't have the revenue associated yeah. with it, 
it, you know, what happens? Right. And I actually am intrigued to see what to see what the outcome of that litigation is. And some of the budgetary reforms that we passed in the House in December, right. you know, look to close some of those loopholes where it will force the governor, if that happens again, to put money into budgetary reserve and not allow yeah. those expenditures to occur. Uh, but look, different days. We've had so many different challenges the last couple of years uh, with the administration. You know, a lot of questions out there that hopefully we get some answers. And I, th- I hope it's an opportunity to enact good policy to take advantage of those opportunities to change things. Well, what do you like about the job the most? What, what's the best part of being the House majority you know, I leader? think the best part is truly you get to know members and the issues that are mm-hmm. important to communities that are not mine. And you get to, you know, I'll go to some areas, they'll talk about property taxes, some areas jobs, some areas education, some areas, you know, crime and those sort of things. The one the one issue that's really comes up er- everywhere nowadays, I've found, is the opioid sure, crisis yeah. and heroin mm-hmm. and the overdoses. Um, but also, you know, sometimes you've got to spend years working on policy, but the moment it comes together, it's just an amazing, amazing moment. When pension reform finally came yeah. together, and I know you guys were part of that push for years, to see it happen is yeah. pretty amazing. Since 06, we were banging that drum. I yeah. mean, it's pretty amazing. And then you think of, you know, when I come home and I look at Joshua, I look at Gracie, I look at Ellie and think, you know, when you're older, people are going to have easier decisions yeah. because of the decision we made. Yeah. You know, and that puts it into perspective that you're making generational decisions. It's amazing. Well, talking about your kids, uh, how do you uh, balance, you know, having a young family, being, what, three and a half hours uh, from three uh, hours. Your, your office, right, your Harrisburg office? Uh, how has it been balancing all of that? Uh, luckily, I have a wife who is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, she works full time, too, for a local hospital. Uh, but she's pretty amazing in balancing that. And look, I've always been one of those guys who I don't like Harrisburg. I go to Harrisburg <laughs> for a purpose. And if I don't need to be there, I'm working in my Indiana office. And with technology in today's world, you can do more and more you know, with a smartphone than you could have done a decade ago with a massive computer sure. and infrastructure. And look, I make it a point when I can get home, I do. I mean, I, I coach my son's Little League team. I want to be at the dance recitals, my daughter's softball games. Uh, all three of them are in swim teams. So, you know, we there's not a lot of time for my uh, own hobbies. In fact, I think my hobbies now are coaching <laughs> Little League and attending my, my children's yeah. events. Uh, but, you know, you only get that uh, opportunity once in a lifetime. And it's something I don't want to miss. And well, and that's that's important because I've seen so many uh, folks who have neglected that, yeah. and uh, it's unfortunate. So it's good that uh, you and Heather are able to have that kind of a balance uh, uh, work and home life. Um, so uh, so what's next? I mean, as we're talking here, your name's being thrown out there as possible a congressional run with uh, Bill Schuster uh, stepping down from his seat. Uh, I mean, what, what where are you headed next? Well, that, that's a great question. Uh, one that I did not think I should would I be, be asking Heather uh, this question? <laughs> What's Dave going to do next? Maybe she could give a more concrete <laughs> answer. Um, look, it's something I I've always told myself I didn't want to go to D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, that I liked state government, uh, but from the same perspective, when an opportunity drops out of the sky, and it was kind of a shock, I think, to a lot of people, including myself, when Congressman Schuster announced he wasn't running mm-hmm. again, right after the new year, and. I had a a lot of folks contact me and say, look, you need to actually think about this. Like, you need to consider this. Like, don't just brush it aside. 
you know, when God drops an opportunity in your lap, you know, sometimes you have to have the courage to go after it. Mm -hmm. So I am going to make a decision here, hopefully in the next couple days, of which direction we're going to go for 2018. And it'll be. Put It'll, an addendum on this. Yeah, you have to put an addendum. You can update forward. folks when when this interview is playing. But uh-huh. look, and it's going to be one of those uh, choices too. I'm not going to run for the state house and run for Congress at the same time. Okay. You know, if I run for Congress, I'm going to run for Congress. If I run for the state house, I'm going to run and you know continue as majority leader and continue to you know wage the battles in Harrisburg. Uh, but you know, we're each faced with those crossroads in life, and you got to choose the right direction. Uh, for your family, uh, primarily, right. yeah. uh, for the folks that you're looking to serve. But, you know, also you've got to be at peace with it, uh, with the Lord above, as that that is the chat path that he has chosen uh-huh. for you. Well, so uh, I wish you well in that decision-making that you've got Thank you. ahead there with Heather and, and uh, your future there. Uh, thoughts on the 2018 gubernatorial election? Of course, we've got right now four Republican candidates. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems that Governor Wolf will be unopposed in, in his primary. Uh, what are your thoughts on 2018 election here? You know, I think it's going to be a fascinating year because you've got four legitimate Republican candidates. You've got Scott Wagner, who is a very conservative candidate who's been working his tail off for a number of years with the goal of becoming governor, you know, kind of follows in that Trump sort of yeah. pattern of, you know, sometimes doesn't always say the politically correct thing. But you know what he's saying is what he means. He's authentic, right? He's authentic, and he's willing to lay it out there. Uh, You've got Paul Mango, who is a a, has a decorated record of serving his country. You know, I think he was a paratrooper Mm -hmm. uh, in the United States Army. You know, has worked hard is a a testament to building a a fortune uh, from the ground up because I think he had some pretty humble beginnings. Uh, you've got Laura Ellsworth, who's been a leader on issues like pension reform, as the chair of the Greater Pittsburgh Chamber of Commerce. And, and, and you and would just have a seen dynamic, her more out here in the yeah, West. Absolutely. Part, in the yeah. West, I've dealt yeah. with her with okay. uh, Pittsburgh a great deal, and then with pension reform. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have got Speaker Terzai, who Mike and I go a long way back. He was in my wedding uh-huh. uh, about you know, just over 12 years ago. We've served together in the House, and he's been a fighter for years for the conservative cause. So I think we've got a lot of good choices. So if we could have a Frankenstein candidate, right? A little bit of all of them. It would be awesome. (laughs) It would make a lot of people more comfortable with the choice that they're going to make. But look, I think it's going to be a competitive gubernatorial election going into the fall with whoever's going to face Governor Wolf. And look, I think with the passage of tax reform in D.C., I think we're going to see the economy really start to churn. I mean, Mm -hmm. you got the Dow Jones over 25,000. Uh, you've got uh, people the, giving uh, pay raises, uh, bonuses. I mean, there it, seems to be an enthusiasm. It, there is. The There's yeah. an enthusiasm out there. Yeah. You know, if that really translates into uh, the creation of uh, many more jobs, I think the the, the Trump uh, momentum is going to pick up and hopefully lead to other policy yeah. victories in Washington, D.C. Well, and, and also in Harrisburg. In uh, talking of that, where do you see us going here in 2018 and the opportunities that exist of pushing a real pro-growth agenda that can build on you know the, the good things that you've done but my goodness pennsylvania has a tremendous opportunity uh as you know the fifth largest state now uh and uh, really a place that you know you have young kids i've got fairly young kids that i want to keep uh here uh, what what do you see as kind of the policy agenda that you want to see the house uh and the senate 
really pursue and, and put on the governor's desk here in this uh, Well, look, year? I think there's a number of areas. I think welfare reform is one of those areas, yeah. particularly with the Trump administration changes uh, just recently here. I, I think the passage of tax reform in D.C. gives us that opportunity, hopefully that window where the policy wonks like myself have been waiting for for quite some time. Are you talking like reducing like, corporate net income can tax? Can we look or at what, lowering what you, the yeah. CNI? Can okay. we look at lowering the PIT? Mm-hmm. You know, can we look at you know lowering the cost for job creators to create jobs yeah. and then allowing workers to take more of their money home every week in their paycheck? You know, I think the passage of tax reform in D.C. and particularly once we get into the month of February, where folks are going to see the benefit in their paycheck. I'm hoping that that spurs a real discussion in Harrisburg. Well, Can we do the same? Well, I know that uh, you've had some of your uh, colleagues that have been pushing some of the welfare reform. Uh, there's some regulatory reform. I think that, uh, you know, we certainly need a cultural change in a lot of our regulatory agencies. Those that want to say, I want to find you doing something wrong to where they shift to hey, how can we help you how, do things right? You how know? can we yeah. make sure you're doing it the right way? Yeah. How can we help you grow your business? Yeah. How can we help you build your home? How can we help you build the Little League field or the playground instead of putting up barrier right. after barrier after barrier? Well, and that's an executive uh, agency function uh, too many well, and times. I, look, uh, I think yeah. that, that does come down to leadership yep. uh, at the head of the executive branch, whether it be president or governor. You know, but look, if there are policy changes we can make in that regard as well. I know, you know, Representative Medcalf's been looking at some policy changes. Representative Benninghoff, our policy chair, you know, a lot of members have been working on regulatory reform because we hear about it more and more particularly from job creators, but also just from folks frustrated with the barriers in their everyday life. Yeah. Well, I I know you started out uh, with uh, Governor Ridge uh, as an intern, and he was fond of uh, saying we need to make Pennsylvania a leader amongst the states. I think we still have that tremendous opportunity. Uh, And I I encourage you, commend you for the work you've done uh, and spur you forward with even more uh, with what we can do uh, here in Pennsylvania. Well, we have an amazing opportunity. You look at what we have in this state. We've got the the, the proximity to the marketplaces. Yep. We've got the energy to not just be energy independent, but to be the leader in the country on energy development. We've got an amazing workforce with an amazing work ethic. We've got top-notch educational institutions from bottom to top. You know, maybe sometimes they need to coordinate efforts a little bit better, but you know, amazing educational opportunities. If we actually have a situation where government gets out of the way, can you imagine what the state can be? It, it can yeah. lead the United States to a new revolution. Well, we would retain uh, the reason we're called the Keystone State, yep. uh, and I think that that's important. So, well, Dave, uh, thanks for uh, inviting me here at Noblestein Brewery. I've enjoyed our conversation. I do wish you well uh, in the decisions that you have uh, here going forward of whether to uh, go off to uh, the Potomac or to stay on the Susquehanna, <laughs> right, as we talk about it. But I wish you, Heather, and the, the family well. Well, Matt, we just are so glad you took the time to come to Indiana. Enjoy uh, a, a few drinks uh, here at Noble's. All good beer, I'll tell you that. Welcome you back anytime, Matt. <laughs> All right, thanks, Dave. Thanks. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.